HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Ithaca, New York boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation among 150 waterfalls. Plan your trip today with help from visitithaca.com. Hey, Meet and 3 listeners. This is Hannah Forden back again to talk to you about cider. I'm one of the producers on Meet and 3, and a few weeks ago, I shared the first episode of my newest project, Hardcore. It was all about the history of cider in the United States, from the mythology of our cider-making founding fathers to cider's near eradication during Prohibition. So to follow up, here is episode two of Hardcore. Today, I want to take you with me as I explore the Finger Lakes region of New York and try to figure out if you can taste a place. So crack open a cold can or bottle of cider and come upstate with me. I'm going to chat with academics, cider makers, and scientists about the magic of terroir. And if you enjoy what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to Hardcore wherever you listen to podcasts. Enjoy. Welcome back to Hardcore a new series from Heritage Radio Network. Over six episodes, we're taking a close look at the rebirth of American cider. I'm Hannah Forden. Last time, we did a deep dive into the history of cider in the United States, from its popularity during colonial times to its near annihilation during Prohibition. In this episode, we're going upstate to the Finger Lakes region of New York, to get a taste of place. Yeah, when you look out the window, it is gorgeous. We're in the middle of a really busy harvest season. You can see there's lots of bees buzzing around the apples that are in the crates right now, which means we need to get pressing. And yeah, the leaves are starting to turn color. It's a beautiful October in uh, the Finger Lakes region of New York. We spoke to orchardists and cider makers like Deva Moss, who co-owns Redbird Orchard Cider, as well as policy experts and academics in an effort to understand what makes cider more than just fermented apple juice, how it gains its complexity and flavor, and can even tell a story about where it's made. We want to know... What makes the tastiest apple? It's been a great year for apples for us. We've got a lot, and they're 
small, which is good for cider because they're packed um, with tannins and acids and they're really high bricks, which means sugar levels are high, which for us makes fantastic cider. So we're really excited about this uh, harvest of 2019. And what makes the cider in this region so special? Uh, right now we're in between Seneca and Cayuga Lake. This is the, the land that the Iroquois called the land between the lakes. And it's kind of the heartland of U.S. cider making in a lot of ways. We're talking about terroir. It is a word that comes from French, and it is a kind of proposition that has been part of French culture for a long time that understands soil or dirt as being something that is not just literal, like the brown or black or red uh, sort of amalgamation and of, you know, of geology and geography, but in fact, it is about the soil that is in a sense very much bounded by the place, a certain kind of geographic region. Meet Amy Trubeck, a professor of nutrition and food science in the University of Vermont. She's also the author of The Taste of Place, A Culinary Journey into Terroir. It's difficult to translate because it's not an absolute singular idea. So even though one could translate it as soil, it's more than the soil. Um, It's about a whole set of environmental conditions and cultural practices. So frequently, the concept of terroir is used when we're talking about wine. The conditions that fruit, like grapes or apples, grow in influence the flavor of the beverage. It's a word we use to talk about things as ineffable as flavor and texture. The vocabulary we use to describe wine has become fairly mainstream. But before we get too deep into the topic of terroir, let's just sort out what are we talking about when we talk about cider. I asked Jordan Warner Berry to weigh in on the issue. Jordan probably knows more about how we talk about cider than anyone else. She has conducted an in-depth study of the language used on cider labels. We're going to dive into her findings in more detail in our upcoming episode about marketing, but for now, we're just focusing on the language we use to talk about taste. Someone in the industry, and I can't at this point remember who it was that said it, but it's a sentiment that's been echoed so many times, um, said to me, language is a way to elevate our industry and the type of growth we want. Here are the top 20 words used on cider labels. Dry, blend, fermented, yeast, wild, tart, gluten-free, orchard, sweet, fresh, crisp, fruit, unfiltered, traditional, aged, oak, American, wine, refreshing, and local. Hearing this, I was struck by the fact that so few of these words actually say something about how the cider tastes. Uh, There are still things we need to define on a more sensory level to help consumers. What does tart actually mean in cider? Is that talking about acid? Is it talking about a lack of balance? A lot of these words are trying to get at the same thing, but they they don't really mean anything. Um, Fresh is another one, whatever. Um, Dry and sweet 
are very helpful. Many different factors contribute to what cider tastes like. And even consumer perceptions can shape which flavors are favored over others across the whole market. A confident cider drinker might know to ask for a dry cider. That dry feeling that is so popular is caused by the presence of tannins. That satisfying sensation has origins that are far more complex than we might realize. What's next? And what's next for me are conversations around regionality, around um, apple types, and kind of exploring what apples can do the same way that has been done with grapes and wine. And I think leaning into regionality and to place and to terroir is a very cool way to incorporate storytelling really easily because you're talking about what grows and why. And that's been really successful for wine. And I think to capture that part of the market, that's what people want to know. Terroir, in one word, contains the hands that make the cider, the mineral-rich soil in which the apples grew, and even the yeasts that spurred its fermentation. So... Let's immerse ourselves in this concept that is at times esoteric and others deeply scientific. Terroir shines a light on the primordial beauty of eating and drinking locally. Let's take it back to basics. We'll start with the apple and what makes for a great harvest. Here's Eric Schott, the co-owner of Redbird Orchard Cider. We spoke with Eric and his wife and business partner, Deva Moss, in their sunny tasting room. Their orchard is just buzzing with life. In an adjoining field, their sheep feast on pumice, which is a delicious mush of all the leftover bits of apple from cider making. So to sum it up, their farm is idyllic. I mean, I don't remember it being so perfect in September ever before. We had like sunny, bright sunny days and these really cool nights, multiple nights in the mid-40s. Those cool nights are really important because they preserve acidity in the fruit and they and the, the sun and the warmth from the day accelerates accelerates the ripening, but it preserves the acid also in the evening and in the night. That's what we love about cool climate viticulture and cool climate apple growing is that we preserve acidity. And so a great September, October just started for us. It's been looking similar. And um, and yeah, so the general, the general idea so far with harvest is plentiful crop, beautiful color, which also I think in my mind translates to beautiful tannins and beautiful um, ripe flavors. Weather is a critical and highly variable way that the environment affects the ultimate flavor of a cider. But it's not that simple. Anything from the ground beneath us to the taste of the public can have a powerful effect. Well, terroir is the soil, the microclimate, the agricultural practices, and I think the people, not only involved in the production of the cider, but the people that are kind of 
in the region that are basically consuming it because in a way they're sort of dictating what we do right mm. like a, a a musician right if he plays music he or she plays music and it gets a certain response from the crowd they may tend to just shift the direction of what they do right because they're seeing acceptance you know that means that people the region and farmers can all impact flavor. I think of like the cider wine vintage um, terroir question as sort of like um, it's sort of like the personality of a place. Like it's it's not just like the slope and the on the um, and the and the weather for the year, but it's it's kind of like what you even did during that season with the apples and how you handled them and like what you were going through at the time actually creates this package that is this cider from this certain time period. That's Ezra Sherman, a partner in Eve Cidery. His wife, Autumn Stoshik, the founder of Eve Cidery, started making cider professionally in 2002. How long I've been making cider has basically been the time period that I've been with Autumn. Um, Do you? I have this very distinctive memory of like, tr- like tr- of us trying to date, and basically, I was kind of like, if you want to spend time with me, it has to be like picking apples or something. No, actually, like that. they are amongst the first pioneers to bring cider making in the region from a hobby to a viable business. I think that one of the things about about us and making cider is that, um, like Ezra said, the the piece of it that I have always been the most drawn to is the farming aspect of it, and that the the way that I farm, the way that I am um, drawn to farming and drawn to agriculture is not is not interesting to me. Like you know uh, how to figure out how to produce the maximal possible yield from an acre of land. It's, it's more interesting to me to um, think about how I can like work in partnership with a, um, a natural ecosystem. I've always been just really enamored with the idea that the desired outcome you're looking for is something that you can measure through taste. And to me, that just um, feels like it just feels so much more inspiring to me than measuring it by yield. While I know we're getting a bit poetic, it's difficult to pin down the concept of terroir. Here's Amy Trubeck again. It's a dynamic concept. It is not static. It is always changing and becoming something different. So there, I think there's always a tension and a discussion about terroir between is it static or is it dynamic? And if it's dynamic, is it Who gets to say what makes it real in that context? Whenever we venture into the territory of the sensory, the esoteric, there are bound to be disagreements. Meet Ian Merwin of Black Diamond Farm. Within the community of cider makers and drinkers in the Finger Lakes, Ian Merwin is something of a legend for both his vast scientific knowledge and remarkable ciders. We spoke with him in his orchard tasting room, 
which was filled to the brim with cider enthusiasts. And a lot of people will say, well, natural fermentation is terroir. I actually totally disagree. It's not. It's bacterial terroir. It's not. Terroir to me means your climate, your soils, your wine or cider making techniques, the varieties that are in, you know, the tradition that you're working in. And something like Britannomyces, which is the most common thing you'll get in a natural fermentation, to me that just totally overwhelms all the other variables that that um, we want to express. So a lot of people disagree with me on that, but I'm, that's our philosophy. It's not microbe wire, you know, it's terroir. So. Wild fermentation refers to when a cider maker invites naturally occurring yeasts to define the flavor of their cider. These yeasts can come from the skin of the apples themselves, the air, the hands of the cider maker, and countless other places. On the other side is controlled fermentation. In this method, cider makers avoid uninvited yeasts at all costs, and they use a specific yeast that won't add much in the way of flavor, but simply highlight the taste of the fruit. Natural fermentation can be risky, but for Autumn at Eve Cidery, wild yeast is critical to her philosophy, both as a farmer and a cider maker. This simplified idea of a place being sort of like rocks and soil and an elevation to me is just like sort of having a limited understanding of what a place is. I think that microbiology is absolutely integral to that. I feel pretty passionately about that. Um, I think that I just read an article in Modern Farmer um, about a study that was done comparing the microbiome of conventionally grown apples um, versus organically grown apples. And um, it's a completely different microbiome. And, and, and the thing is, the microbiome, like we, we, a lot of things we don't think about this, but like the microbiome of a place, it's all over the plant. It's on the leaves, it's on the fruit, it's in the roots. And it's so profoundly influential on those plants. After a quick break, we'll do more exploration of the Finger Lakes. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca. Located in New York's Finger Lakes region, Ithaca boasts an authentic craft beverage experience, tasty farm-to-table culinary adventures, and scenic outdoor recreation. As the saying goes, Ithaca is gorgeous. The city is home to 150 waterfalls and gorges sprinkled through its downtown and sloping hillsides. State parks and acres of natural lands offer outdoor recreation for every level of enthusiast. Come stroll among the cool ravines, scenic hiking trails, and natural vistas. Ithaca is home to Ivy League Cornell University and Ithaca College, resulting in an influx of new cultures, new tastes, and new energy every year. There's so much to explore, from art galleries and museums to unique attractions like the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Ithaca sits at the heart of a blossoming heritage and craft cider industry. Some of these delicious ciders can be bought in market, but many of the most unique varieties can only be experienced with a visit to Ithaca and this great cider region. Go to visitithaca.com to get inspired and plan your trip today. Welcome back to Hardcore. This week, we're getting a taste for Ithaca. 
The area's proximity to the Finger Lakes, as well as the Great Lakes, make it a prime location for apple growing. Now, just as local winemakers did years back, cider makers have gravitated to Ithaca to revive this American beverage. This is Ian Merwin again. We've got a fabulous terroir in the Finger Lakes. We've got high pH soils. We've got a long, cool growing season. We grow and historically have grown a dozen or so really good old American heirloom apples, things like Roxbury Russet, Golden Russet, Newtown Pippin, you know, Northwest Greening, they're Northern Spy. We grow all these great cider apples, and that's, that's part of our terroir, I think. Not only do apples grow well in this climate, but the area's geology makes for fruit that is ripe for fermentation. Here's Eric Schott from Redbird. It's interesting because the Finger Lakes wine industry has, has, you know, we've kind of figured out the terroir of the Finger Lakes wine industry. It's like, you know, it's acid-driven, austere, bright fruit, you know, in our Rieslings and even in our Cab Francs and all that kind of, you know, you know, generally, generally tight wines. And I think the ciders that are coming from fruit grown in this region are kind of showcasing the same thing, mm-hmm. which is really cool because then it really sort of, it's sort of confirming this climate and soil influence on fruit that's destined for alcohol, which is, which is really, I think, pretty cool. But what does scientist Greg Peck have to say about all of this? You might remember Greg from the last episode. He's a professor of horticulture at Cornell. We got a lot of color in our culinary apples. And it's a different climate than Washington State, for example, for growing apples. Our productivity might be a little bit lower, but our fruit quality is different. And those are related to climate, that's related to the soils. But as a scientist, again, you know, yeah, does does the place affect the quality of the product? Yes. Uh, Does a gala from New York State taste different than a gala from Washington State? Yeah. Um, Genetics are going to make it so you know that's a gala, but there's going to be some differences between the two the two uh, apples grown in the two different locations. Scientists and cider makers alike agree that the best way to understand terroir is to taste. Here's Autumn from Eve's Cidery. We've had the opportunity to make cider with Northern Spy from different farms. And I would say, for example, having made cider with um, Northern Spy from a farm um, in around Lake Ontario, where it's sort of a longer, easier growing season. The ciders tended to be sort of more um, fruity and aromatic, fruit forward, really pretty. And um, the, the ciders that we make here on these very steep hillsides that have just sort of layers of shale with a tiny little bit of soil on top of them tend to be much more like salty um, and minerally. So... Um, that's, that's an apple I think is exciting, and I really hope to see um, more single-variety bottlings as, as the years go on so people can explore terroir through that variety. Tasting a single varietal cider from different regions can illuminate the difference in flavor across the country. Amy Trubeck has some advice on exercising your palate. I mean, I think if you're interested in the concept of terroir and you, you say, you know, I really want to understand how sensory quality, in a sense, gets expressed through place and the people in that place is to pick a place. (laughs) So instead of going broad, go deep. 
and through repetition, right? Sensory experience and your sense of discernment is always through repetition and comparison. So, you know, if you're really interested in hard cider, like really drink the ciders of New England, for example, as a group versus the ciders of the West Coast. And then when you drink the ciders of New England, really learn something about the different cider makers. Who's using cider fruit? Who's using wild yeast fermentation? Who's um, using blends? And start to just taste everything. And then you'll start to pick up some qualities and you'll be like, wow, this cider from this producer has this really specific element to it and then you'll realize okay this person uses wild yeast so I think it's the wild yeast and now I have a preference for that so I realize I like whatever sensory qualities wild yeast brings to a cider so I'm going to look for that. In the Finger Lakes talking about regionality means more than terroir. Regional certifications are hugely important in the wine industry as they're used to define not only the taste but the quality of wines made in a specific area. The American Viticultural Areas, or AVA, help to do just this, communicating to consumers that wines in an AVA-certified region are of a certain quality. The AVA is like an artisanal stamp of approval. Wines made in the Finger Lakes use the AVA label to build consumer loyalty and shine a light on a community of producers. But cider makers are not afforded the same privilege. Here's Greg Peck again. And it's a hot button issue for wine production originally, and now it has um, become a hot button issue for pretty much all crops, and cider is not immune from that as well. And, you know, originally I think the idea was formed that there were specific regions in Europe, particularly in France, where certain grape varieties did better than anywhere else, right? And so growing Pinot Noir in Burgundy because of the specific terroir of Burgundy, and that was the ideal location for that wine grape. And so then it kind of bled into the idea of authenticity. Oh, it's more authentic to grow Pinot Noir in Burgundy than in the Finger Lakes or California or anywhere else in the world. So then that becomes a marketing, social cultural question and not necessarily a science question. I asked cider advocate and former executive director of the New York Cider Association, Jen Smith, to talk a bit more in depth about what the AVA certification really means for cider. There's a known benefit to creating geographic regions for value-add products like wine, like cider. And we face a couple of challenges in doing that in New York. If you want to sell your cider outside of New York State, you have to apply for label approval from the TTB. And that is essentially sending um, proofs. what agent you get determines what you're able to get by. Um, there are restrictions on using vintage 
or harvest year, there are restrictions on using specific locations. There are restrictions on what you can call cider or what you must call sparkling wine based on ABV, etc. Jen refers to the TTB, or the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau. It's an extension of the Treasury Department that regulates and collects taxes on the sale of tobacco and, you guessed it, alcohol. Factors like a cider's alcohol content can dramatically impact how it can be sold. Basically, the TTB is one of the many groups that are defining the beverage market, and cider is trying hard to break through. Top of the list is the uh, kind of national wine lobby is resistant to cider either using their existing um, AVA locations on labels, and in fact, additionally, creating our own um, regions. So that's a big challenge. We're a young industry. We don't have deep pockets. And the, and the wine industry is, is really pushing back on our wish to reflect location on labels. The wine industry is protective of its designated region. They would suggest that it dilutes consumer understanding of wine in some way, right, if we're talking about our products in the same way. I think it would instead uh, kind of complicate and improve the consumer's understanding of wine um, as well as of cider. Uh, But sadly, it's not my decision to make. For small cider producers who are working hard to tell the story behind their product about where and how it's grown, these legal limitations can present significant challenges. Melissa Madden is the woman behind Kite and String Cider, Good Life Farm, and Finger Lakes Cider House. You might be wondering why all three of her companies have a different name. When we had to go through a rebranding process, we absolutely could not call our cider Finger Lakes Cider House Cider. Number one, that's a lot of words. But we could not put Finger Lake Cider House on the front of our label because of all these restrictions. Even though that was our name, we had no right to use it. Despite her businesses being at the heart of the Finger Lakes region, regulations wouldn't allow her to include that place in the name of her cider-making business. This means that as a small business owner, she's forced to juggle the challenge of having a tasting room, a farm, and a cider company that each have an entirely different brand. Here's Amy Trubeck again. All ideas about policy and regulatory apparatus around place-based foods has to be driven by the producers themselves. So the producers will have to make some decisions about how they want to operate and the kind of identity they want to have. In the United States, is is that the people that are involved in tourism and marketing and also agricultural support and tech, technical support don't tend to understand terroir, understand why that's a set of, it's a proposition that people should organize around and that there should be some, in a sense, uh, support, both uh, policy-based, but also technical support around. So I think it's a huge challenge in the United States. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why you don't see the concept, you know, you don't see cheeses sort of developing regionally with regional affinities. And it tends to go to a certain level and then it gets blocked by longstanding practices, but also a kind of, I would say, a lack of imagination 
um, in the people that can really support uh, small scale food and drink producers. Laws aren't going to change overnight, and so cider makers are finding innovative ways to tell the story of their regions and the flavors that make these places so special. Like Autumn from Eve's Cidery. I think that in like in our ideal world, in, in this sort of like fantasy world that we have, it all gets to communicated to consumers when they taste it. <laughs> the reality of it is is probably not that, you know pure and idealistic. I think there's a lot of um, setup that needs to go into having that communication go over 